welcome to Dot Ilion Podcast. My name is Yoel Glick, and I am the director of Dot Ilion, Center for Jewish Meditation and Spiritual Training in the Holy City of Jerusalem. We are delighted to bring to you these podcasts that explore new ways of looking at ancient traditions in the light of modern spirituality. We hope they will open your mind and expand your heart. Today's podcast is dedicated to the High Holy Days, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that begin the Jewish New Year. The podcast is called A Living Presence. On the one hand, the Jewish New Year is a time of renewal and reaffirmation when we assert our commitment to our highest aspirations and ideals. Yet, oddly enough, there's one area of commitment that is often overlooked. And that's the commitment to make God a real and living presence in our life. And this truth is probably what I would say, if anything, what I have spent the last 35 years of my life proclaiming. It lies at the center of all of my work. And of course, as you all know, it's a, a resin out of my encounter, our encounter with the East, and the extraordinary experiences we had with our teacher. And not only just through meditation, but particularly for me anyways, the door opening of the yogic understanding of Judaism that gave me a whole new perspective for looking at our religion and religion in general and also brought the Tanakh and lives of the patriarchs and the matriarchs and all of the great prophets come alive for me in a way where before they'd just been impossible fantasies. They suddenly became tangible realities that were at the heart of an intense spiritual life. In Judaism, religions come to mean so many different things. Community, identity, social justice, self-fulfillment, all very important and good things. But we've forgotten the original meaning of the word religion, which is to rejoin from the Latin ligar, because religion is the path of rejoining ourselves with God. And, you know, if you think how our religion began, the power of the stories in the Torah and the Tadach, it's hard to believe that we've gone so far astray what their lives were about. They had stories and stories about families and difficult lives and the people, but it's certainly about a journey and a life that centered on God and the experience of the divine. 
And I have to say the truth is that for most Jews today, the Torah and the Tanakh, the Bibles become parables or abstract ideas. Or if not, they go to the other extreme and it becomes a little interpretation of every word that leaves little room for real understanding and revelation that comes through inner experience. Yet at the same time, there have been places in the tradition where this inner experience is still alive. For example, in Hasidic communities, they still see God as a spiritual goal, and they're trying to keep it alive in their religious life. Whatever other struggles we have with their community and how they live and interact with the wider world, this aspect is something they still understand. And when they want to talk about God union, they they talk about Dvekut, about binding or clinging to God. And the Baal Shem Tov teaches that really all the mitzvot have been created in order to help us join to God. There's a play on the word mitzvah and mitzavet, which means really to, to join yourself, to bind yourself to God. And then he goes a step further and says, the truth is that the outer form of a mitzvah is only a garment or a vessel to hold the inner power. And that's the life force and the essence of a commandment. Without that inner power, a commandment's like a body without a soul. And this is the key idea that has to reemerge within our thinking. Certainly, I think, where all of us are living. And this is what made the Baal Shem Tov a revolutionary rather than just another teacher. And it's what the, made the Nagdim so oppose the Hasidic movement. It's kind of ludicrous to think that the attempt to bring the living presence of God back to the center of Judaism was so threatening to the Jewish establishment of their day. But that's how it was, and that is how it is. In fact, if you think about it, many Jews today pride themselves in the fact that Judaism is a this-worldly religion. And it's kind of sad that that's what our focus and goal is. It's one thing if they said it's about bringing God into the world, the living presence of God into every action, every experience. But it's really about how much we're, we're in to this world. Says we we're leaving out the most important part of religious life. We're focusing to use the Valshemtov's metaphor on the body instead of the soul. Everyone here understands that idea. But I just keep coming into contact with it again and again. Because the truth is that the experience of the reality of God is the activating principle that underlies all faiths. It's the foundation upon the outer edifice of the world religions are built. 
the experience, the reality of God is the engine that drives the motor of the spiritual life. Without it, the vehicle of religion becomes stagnant. It can't move. It's static. It has no energy behind it. It has no life. And if you really think of how do religions come into being, they, they all begin with a great personal inner experience. And that experience becomes the life force, this wellspring out of which all of the religion evolves. And that whoever has this great experience tries to then bring it down into the world in teachings and revelations and poetry in whichever aspect they're trying to give it over to the followers. But it's really the spiritual power of these moments that flows through the religion. And in fact, really what's holding up Judaism is that moment on Sinai. It's the lives of our great prophets and mystics. And that's what really energizes and inspires everyone to live the life of being a Jew. You think of Avraham and his experience of the oneness of God, the oneness of all being. As I've said many times, it's not that he had a philosophical discussion and decided there was one God, but he had an experience of the oneness of being underlying all that is. And he gave that experience over to those that he met. And it was that experience of the oneness that made them become monotheists, not because he had good philosophical arguments. And Moshe has the experience of, I am that I am, of a God that is the pure being that underlies all of existence. And Shmuel has the experience of Hineni, of, of that place of putting your heart, mind, and soul before God and being present be a divine instrument. And Liyahu, his life begins being fed by the ravens, moves into bringing fire down from heaven and come to its final fulfillment in a still small voice. And all of these about the personal experience of God's living presence. And that's what we take down with us through the generations. In fact, the spontaneous response from all of Israel when Eliyahu brings fire down from heaven, Adonaihu Elohim. The Lord is God, the only true reality. That is how we end our, the high holiday season at the end of Yom Kippur. So the key to awakening this inner experience is a shift in our consciousness. We have to move away from the narrow physical way of thinking that characterizes our normal daily life to an expansive spiritual 
manner of perception that allows us to experience reality from a whole other place. And the truth is that we inhabit a physical world and have a physical mindset. And that really determines our way of interacting with reality. We use our minds, a great gift to analyze, to concretize everything we experience. And nothing's untouched by that process. Nothing is ever experienced just as it is. Everything is reflected through the mirror of our preconceived mental notions and ideals. In particular, the very active Jewish mind with its endless figuring out, thinking, way creating ideas, Talmudic analysis of everything. We are living in our heads. And on one way, okay, that's what allows us to understand the world around us. That's what allows us to interact. At the same time, it's actually building barriers between ourselves and the direct experience of the reality we live in. Because everything has to be filtered through a whole web of mental construct and emotional impressions before we actually get to the experience itself. And our modern high-tech world has made this issue a hundred times worse. It's added several layers more between ourselves and just living, being, and experiencing. It's made our whole life a hundred times more complicated. Because now everybody's pulled in a million directions by all these sensory stimulus that we're receiving at every moment of every day. And they're also trying to program us with this input into certain modes of perception, certain ways of behaving. And through this constant assault that we get from mass media that we're hooked up to 24-7, unless we can keep Shabbat and get a break, we're getting new information We're being permeated with new opinions. And half the time, we're not even aware or consciously engaged with the fact that it's taking place. And this is the reality that that we live in and we see our children, grandchildren being brought up in. And how, on one hand, it has many gifts, but in another way, it's made so they can't concentrate for more than 11 seconds. And many of the things that we were brought up to be able to cherish because we had that extra space are being lost for them. And this is actually where the Yamim Nora'im come in, because they've been created as the antidote to this problem. Rosh Hashanah, in fact, is about breaking out of our set patterns, about the prison of the mind and the emotions and entering into the freedom of our true self. It's about awakening to full conscious awareness instead of 
wandering around unconscious all the time. It's about moving from being focused on our lower mind to instead being living within the higher mind, within the consciousness of the soul, and thereby interacting with reality from a whole other place. So on Rosh Hashanah, we have the shofar and we blow a hundred different blasts on the shofar. And the Baal Shem Tov teaches that there's a world called the Shofar Gadol, the world of the great ram's horn. And it says in the prophets that when the messianic time comes, God will blow on a great shofar that'll sound the revelation of the Messiah and the transformation of reality. So he turns this into a spiritual concept, which it kind of is already there in the Kabbalah, that there, there is actually a place, a state of consciousness, where that shofar is blowing all the time. And that world is the natural world of our soul. It's a world of tremendous freedom, of infinite expansion. It's a world without all the boundaries and limitations that make up life in this world. And on Rosh Hashanah, we create a link with that world and open that door into inner freedom. Because as we know, the soul of Israel comes closer and we can move into that reality with greater ease and open up our being to the much greater reality that exists and what we experience day to day. And um, we also know that in the Yovel, the Jubilee year, that the shofar is blown to announce the beginning of the Yovel. And that's the time when all the slaves were freed from bondage after 50 years. And the Baal Shem Tov says, this is symbolic of a spiritual journey we take. There's 50 gates of understanding, right? of Bina. And when we reach that point of transcending all those gates and touching that boundless reality, then we move into the pure consciousness of wisdom, the consciousness without limits, the consciousness of pure being, or actually really pure consciousness without differentiation, whereas there's the incredible freedom that has nothing prevent getting between us and God, between us and that oneness of being that underlies everything that is. And it's moving into that world, into that consciousness of freedom that Rosh Hashanah is trying to help us work our way through. To break on every level bonds that are holding us down in our journey as individuals, in our journey as the Jewish people, 
but in the journey of all of humankind. And the Hasidic master, Rabbi Yisrael of Kalin, says that this is actually what it means when it says that we're written in the book of life or death on Rosh Hashanah. It says, if we hear the shofar of inner freedom on Rosh Hashanah, then the spiritual livingness of that moment becomes engraved in our heart on that day. But if we don't hear that shofar blowing, if we're just deaf to its call, if we can't move our mind out of the narrow spaces that they're caught in, then we continue to be trapped into the slavery of our material existence. And then spiritual death is what is written on the tablet of our soul. Because what does it really mean to be alive? What does it mean to be dead? To be dead is to walk around unconscious. To be dead is to be completely unaware of what's happening all around you. To be dead is to be disconnected from your higher self. Then you might be walking around a body, but you're just a corpse that's on the move. It's only when you're filled with the life and the awareness of your soul, when you're present in the eternal now and experiencing every moment, that you truly are alive. And Rosh Hashanah is a chance to open us up, remove all the barriers that are in our way and live in that powerful freedom of the soul. So the personal revelation that we experience in Rosh Hashanah becomes determinant for the mindset through which we go the whole year. We begin the new year with whatever consciousness we attain in this period. And that mental perspective becomes the, pers- the filter through which we experience reality. It becomes a lens through which we view the world. And that really becomes the question, what glasses are we going to have on when we look at reality? Are we going to have the consumer society glasses Are we going to have God-colored glasses? And each of them will give us a totally different way of seeing and experiencing reality. It'll set different priorities. It'll take us to different places. And it will affect our heart and mind in completely opposite ways. So all of the prayers and rituals of the Yomim Nuramim, days of Ah, that begin on Rosh Hashanah and reach the culmination on Yom Kippur, they're all structured to create the necessary conditions to stimulate this transformation in consciousness we've been talking about. And this transformation takes place in three stages. And the first stage begins on Rosh Hashanah, 
And that first stage is to begin to expand the boundaries of our awareness beyond the narrow view of reality that our physical mind perceives. And we use a powerful influx of expansive ideas, images, and experiences on Rosh Hashanah to facilitate this change in our perception. And they all hold one central motif. God is real. The spiritual realm is real. And that is a living reality, which is God's kingdom. And that there's millions of worlds and levels of consciousness and beings beyond this physical one. And they're all one reality. They're all part of that great consciousness. And that's the truth that we put our faith in and not anything else. And you have one compelling example, particularly in the Sephardic version of the Rosh Hashanah service, that when they take the Torah out of the Ark on Rosh Hashanah day, so the Chazan, the counter, faces the worshippers with the Torah, and together they repeat, Le'olam Adonai Devarchan Shomayim. Your word, O Lord, stands forever in the heavens. And they repeat it, 12 times. It's one of the most mantra-like moments that I've experienced in the synagogue. And it's an incredible experience to hear the whole congregation repeating it over and over. It's as if they're trying to break through physical reality and actually through the use of sound energy, affirmation of will, and the just sheer power of the mind transform their experience of reality, bring heaven down to earth. And this is, in a sense, a a paradigm for what we have to do all year round. As use all our spiritual tools and practices and the power of our mind to bring the higher reality down into our mundane existence and to remind us there was so much more than all the world and the nonsense and the craziness that we see around us right now. And this year, more so than ever, we have to know that there's a greater reality. And this is just one small part of it. And that we can bring the power of that higher reality to help transform this moment of worry and danger and fear into a spiritual opportunity for growth and transformation and renewal and rebirth. So another example of the effective use of ideas and imagery is the Musafs, the additional service. And there, the structures, the uh, service is structured around three central themes. Malchiot, sovereignty, zichronot, remembrance, and shofrot, 
the blast of the ram's horn. I mean, these themes form a basis for a process of personal reflection and is meant to take our spiritual understanding and deepen it yet another level and really awaken within us the first glimpses of this higher reality and of a shift in consciousness. And that's why it's really the longest Musaf service in the year, because it's really meant to be a time of meditation and contemplation. It's not so much a plea, but a diving into the depth of our being to find several extraordinarily important truths about the nature of our reality. So the first theme is Malchuyut, that God is sovereign, or God rules. And what that means is that the universe is not simply a random event. It just didn't happen by chance. And things just don't go without any direction or purpose or meaning. There's a power behind creation, a unifying presence that infuses all life. Right? There's there's the one, the pure being, the self of selves. That is the consciousness that ties everything together and permeates everyone and everything. And we're all one tiny part of that great awareness, cells in that spiritual body. And everything we do is part of the life of that body. All of us are parts of the infinite oneness of the divine. And therefore, this world is a living organism that has everything connected and interdependent. And what happens on one level affects every other level. Happens to one person, affects every other human being. And that's the first great truth. The second theme is Zichonot, God remembers. And that's telling us that this unifying presence is a conscious force, a higher power, as people like to call it today, that higher power oversees and guides all of existence. Everything is noted, is remembered, is engraved, right, within the consciousness, the universal consciousness of the divine. And there's a divine purpose, a divine plan. The whole of creation is moving in a direction. And everything that happens is part of that unfolding process. Might take certain shortcuts or long cuts, detours out of the way, but it all keeps moving towards the divine goal. And we belong to this fellowship of millions and trillions of souls on all the planes, 
soul of Israel, the soul of humanity, the soul of the solar system, the souls of the galaxy, souls of all existence in the universe. We all have a shared source and mission and we're all part of God's universal plan. All part of this unfolding journey we call life. And we each have our part to play and therefore our life or every single life has meaning. And therefore what everything that we do matters. Nothing we do is in vain. Because it's noted, it's incorporated, it becomes part of that larger reality and its unfoldment. And that larger reality pulls us along with it towards the goal. The third theme is shofarot. That's God is calling out to us. The blowing of the shofar takes the process of transforming our material angle of perception into the realm of direct experience. It's a blast that shatters our complacency. It breaks down the walls between us and God. It's an urgent plea that cries out, don't think God's in some far off heaven. God's in each and every single person. God isn't unknowable. We all can have a personal relationship with him and her. At any moment, in every encounter, we can experience the divine. All we have to do is dive deep within to our hearts and find the place at the core of our being where God dwells. Like the revelation of Yaakov, Patriarch Jacob, when he wakes up from his dream of the last, he says, oh my God, what an extraordinary, awesome place this is. It's the house of God and the gateway to heaven, and I had no idea. I thought the house of God was a physical place, but it's actually a space within my own being and in every human being. And that gateway can be entered by everyone by turning inward inside themselves. And God is calling out to us to turn to that place. Really, our job is one simple thing, to listen, to open ourselves to hearing God, to turning towards that place of calling, to fill that shofar blowing at the core of our being and follow that beam of sound and energy to its source that then joins us back to who we really are, that connects us to the oneness of being that's at the heart of our own heart. And that awakens us to the truth that we're not just physical creatures, but we're spiritual beings that really belong in a much more expansive 
and light-filled world. And our job in this world is to experience that soul and that consciousness and to become a vessel for bringing it down into our world. So we meditate on these ideas during Musaf, during all of Rosh Hashanah. And when we do that, our thoughts reach out to touch this greater reality, reality that is beyond anything we can experience with our senses. And it just broadens our whole way of looking at everything that's happening into our life. We get broken out of all the worries, concerns, uh, blockages, pessimism that comes from being confined only to this plane of existence. And we touch a reality that is inhabited by light-filled souls. And that stretches our mind, not just beyond all the troubles here, but beyond all the selfish and short-sighted goals of all our little personal schemes and plans. And we start to visualize and set a divine plan, a a time eon-spanning, universe-spanning vision that gives a whole other level of meaning and purpose to our lives. And that pushes us again, start moving beyond our outer reality and exploring our inner reality. And it pushes us to look past just the facts, what we call the facts of physical reality and to find the living truth that exists underneath. So search for the divine that's peeking out from every living creature, object, and being to find the profound inspiration that can't come from any book, can't come from any emotional fantasies, that can only come from deep within ourselves. And therefore, once we go and touch that place, all we want to do is know God and serve God, make that the center of our lives. And this glimpse, this new yearning, is the first fruit of our journey towards this inner awakening and is the first stage of the process of liberating our consciousness from the founds of physical awareness and lifting us into the freedom of the world of the Shofar Gadol, that place of freedom, openness, expansion, and an completely flowing heart and mind. And that is the experience of Rosh Hashanah. It's a couple of days to even begin to glimpse that, but once we glimpse that, everything changes. Because once we get a glimpse of who we really are, then we can't bear to be 
that false image, that idol that we call ourselves, that is that present person down here. Say, I really have to become who I really am. I can't take any more of all those facades, all those charades that I play or that are played in the world. And therefore we commit ourselves to a process of authenticity and of self-transformation and purification through the next year. That is, think of the steps that will directly take us to the place we want to live in, to the world we want to be part of. And therefore, through the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we begin by turning to God in prayer, supplication, and asking the Holy One to guide us in transforming our personality into the active embodiment of our higher self. To show us the steps and the directions that we have to take in order to truly become and express and live and be centered who we truly are. So in Rosh Hashanah, we get this glimpse of who we really are, but we also get us a glimpse of the living God in every human being. And therefore, this revelation, this shift in our perception, changes the way we see everywhere else, changes the way we want to relate everywhere else. And we want to no longer do anything that could cause suffering to any other person. We no longer want to just have our selfish needs be at the center of everything we do. We want to see and hear and be aware of and respond to the needs, the vulnerabilities, the cares of others. And therefore, first thing as we do, we feel compelled to go to everybody that we provided, created hurt or not given the love and care we should have or not been there for them when they needed us and do everything we can to relieve their pain and mend the hardship and the hurt that we've created. And that's what it means that you go and ask to be forgiven during the 10 days of doing tshuva. And you go to that person and you go to God for help again and again until you make things right. And even if you can't get that person, because some people just can't get to that place of responding, but you at least make sure to return yourself to wholeness, to know you've done everything you can to restore that relationship to as it should be. And therefore, if you look at the tradition of asking for forgiveness during a search made tshuva, it's not just you expressing your regret or you're trying to repent, but it's an expression of our unconditional love for every human being. 
that we're trying to live and express within our life. So this is the second stage in our self-transformation. Then we move on to the third, which is the passive, the whole final process of actually feeling a sense of personal liberation that takes place on Yom Kippur. And on Yom Kippur, we make that transformation by, in a sense, withdrawing from the outside world and entering into inner solitude to find the living presence of God. You could say that Yom Kippur is a very intense one-day retreat. Because if on Rosh Hashanah we get a, a glimpse of that higher reality and we contemplate these ideas and they expand our consciousness and we say, wow, there's something more I, I'm, I'm seeing in a way I haven't seen before. In Yom Kippur, we dive deep within to experience the living presence, to know where our real home is. And from Kol Nidre on Yom Kippur Eve until Nila at the conclusion of the fast, all of our waking time is spent in prayer and contemplation. And we put all mundane matters aside and focus wholly on thoughts on the infinite and the eternal. We forget about our physical needs, desires, and only think about the well-being of our soul. What does that mean? That means that something that occupies a great deal of time when you put it all together is food. Buying food, preparing food, eating the food, digesting the food. We put an enormous amount of energy into eating and drinking. And Yom Kippur, we say, forget it. We don't need to eat and drink. He says, fact, the Kabbalah only says we need and drink because we fell from the Garden of Eden. If we had stayed in that higher state of consciousness, we wouldn't be needing anything to eat or drink. We'd be living off the prana, off the energies, as we know from the stories of Moshe Rabbeinu, who spent 40 days on Har Sinai without eating or drinking. Or the angel that fed Eliyahu also, we have the same story. He fed him food, but obviously it was an angel. He did, what food does an angel have? He fed him energy. And the power of that energy, of that prana, kept him going for 40 days in the desert until he reached Sinai and had that momentous revelation of the still small voice. And so we say, well, we can do that for at least 25 hours. We can pretend we're Moshe Rabbeinu, Elio Navi. We can pretend we're angels. We can live in that reality of the Garden of Eden and try and experience once again, at least for a moment, what it's like to be a being of light. And we don't have to sustain ourselves with all of this food, with taking all these different levels of life and everything that it does to our inner being, we can instead sustain ourselves on God. So that is the first thing is we just give up food and drink. 
we move into that space of living on God. And then we put aside, we forget about everything to do with our status of who we are, what we've accomplished, our role in the world, the things that we have, all that worldly importance and achievement, put it aside and we contemplate our own insignificance, that we're a speck in dust, that in the blink in the eye, a blink of the eye in the eternity of time. Nothing we do matters. Whatever we create, what memory will be of it in a thousand years? We don't wear, so we do not wear leather, we do not wear jewelry, do not bathe, we don't anoint ourselves with perfume or cologne. We strip away all the external facades that we have created to protect us from the truth that only mortal creatures were in the words of our prayer. If we are like a fragile pot shared of the grass that withers, of the flower that fades, it's a fleeting shadow, it's a passing cloud, as the wind that blows, as the floating dust, and as a dream that vanishes. We go around doing all these things to make, give the illusion that we can live forever. Give the illusion that nothing's going to happen to our bodies. To have the illusion that we're so important. But in the end, we achieve real knowledge by accepting the truth of our own insignificance. And that our only real significance as being one part of that eternal, infinite oneness that we call God. So in Yom Kippur, we are living in the recognition of the temporal nature of this physical life. We reflect on the fact that all, flame, all fame is fleeting, all material possessions useful, but frankly meaningless because we take nothing with us when we leave this world. And Yom Kippur, you wear a kittle, which is what you're buried in. Because you're reminding yourself that that's where we all go. And the only thing you take with you is the person you yourself have become. That is what you left. If you become that higher self, then that's where you go. That's your treasure. And trying to remember that's what life is about is why we go through all these abstentions on Yom Kippur Day. And it's also reminding us that life is ever-changing. Nothing stays the same. One minute may be up, next minute everything may be taken away. If we don't understand that this year, then we never will. We acknowledge the truth that no matter how hard we work, no matter what talents we possess, whatever fortune we've amassed, our destiny ultimately rests 
in the hands of God. It is written in our prayers, Shimon Esther, where we say, who in the Tanakh talk of who shall live and who shall die, who shall attain the full measure of a human being's days and who shall not attain it, who shall rest and be quiet and who shall go wandering, who shall be tranquil and who will be disturbed, who shall be at ease, who shall be afflicted, who shall become poor and who shall wax rich, who shall be brought low and who shall be exalted. In Yom Kippur, we also renounce all of our individual plans and ambitions and place ourselves at the service of the divine plan. As we say in the standing prayer, all the created beings will prostrate themselves before you. They all will form a single band. But do carry out your will with a perfect heart. We realize that our schemes are empty dreams. God's plans are the reality that endures forever. And if we can link ourselves to that reality, then we can become joined consciously to that plan. And then we become an effective instrument to bring its purpose to fruition in this world. On Yom Kippur, we relinquish all the illusions of personal grandeur and rest in the knowledge that the Lord has created and is guiding the world. Again, as we state within the prayers, may everything that has been made know that you have made it. Everything that has been created, understand that you have created it. And everyone who has breath of life in his or her nostrils declare that the Holy One God of Israel is the sovereign and his kingdom has dominion over all. Part of the awareness of the higher self is the awareness that there's this great consciousness that underlies and infuses everything and everything that happens happens by that will. And that is the truth of the world and everything else that we live in. And therefore, that's why on Yom Kippur, what are we acknowledging? We're acknowledging that our little wills don't really mean anything much at all that it's only when the will of God is behind an endeavor, an endeavor that it will have a lasting effect. For when the energy of God's goodness flows into a situation, there is nothing that can stand in its way. We think of all the empires that have been built and been destroyed without a trace. All the movements that have started and then collapsed into nothing. The only things that persevere are those that have the will of God behind them. And then something that at the moment might have seemed the most insignificant thing becomes a force that changes the world. 
as again we're told in the prayers, injustice will shut its mouth and all wickedness will go up in smoke when you will remove the rule of evil from the earth. When the will of God flows in, that's how things will change. When we open our hearts to become vessels of the divine will, that's how God's will comes into the world and fills every heart and every mind. And then we can all walk within that consciousness of oneness, living and seeing each other as souls instead of personalities. And it's in that awareness that the world will fulfill itself, that humanity will learn how to live together as one. During the Avoda service to commemorate the worship in the temple, we bow down to God with the whole of our being. We prostrate, fly, falling flat on our face before the eternal one of Israel. And this full prostration is a symbolic of our total surrender, the dedication of our heart, mind, and soul to divine surface. We used to do that in temple days. We've forgotten since. Yom Kippur is the one time we remember the essence of the spiritual life is to surrender our whole being before the divine. On Yom Kippur, we're filled with such intense love for God that we want to make an offering of our whole self to him or her. This whole process of inner awakening comes to its culmination at the end of the fast. Neela service, the entire congregation then chants out loud the first line of the Shema, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Holy One is our God, the Eternal One is One. Then we repeat the phrase, Blessed be the name of the glory of the divine kingdom forever and ever. That we're saying everything on all the worlds, every created being, every physical location, all that exists is all part of that divine kingdom. All of us are interconnected. The higher worlds are pouring into the lower worlds. The lower worlds are reaching up and yearning towards the higher. All of it is one. And it's the faith in that, the oneness of that kingdom and the power of that divine life force to flow into the world and to permeate this reality until it becomes divine. That is where all of our true hope and aspiration is. And then we finish with the affirmation, Adonai Hu Elohim. The Holy One is God. And we repeat that seven times. Like a mantra, chanting over and over again. 
until it's engraved in the depth of our being. And then finally, one last time, we blow on the shofar and end with a long descending blast. And as we chant the Shema, we strive to experience the great oneness that encompasses all, gives life to all, and is the true home of all. As we proclaim the glory of the divine kingdom, we abide in the expansive plane of consciousness. The Baal Shem Tov calls the world of the Shofar Hagadol, the world of infinite freedom. And as we affirm the words, yud Hey vav Hey is God, we renew our commitment to fill our life with purpose and meaning. And as we listen to the sound of the Shofar, we feel the cry of spirit the breath of divine life. Thank you for joining me today. It's been wonderful to be together with you. I hope your mind has been stimulated, consciousness expanded, and your heart blown wide open. I look forward to sharing this time together with you again soon. In the meanwhile, check out our website, .org. For all of our podcasts, webinars, courses, and programs. And if you would like to support our work, go to the home page of the Dad Elyon website and press on the donate button in the top right hand corner. Come visit us the next time you are in Jerusalem. I wish you all Shana Tova, Mutuka, Umivorechet. A blessed new year filled with the sweetness of divine goodness. Shalom. Peace be with you all.